The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different. Hey, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm in three Halls of Fame. For the young fans, they don't give a damn. They just give a damn about themselves and what they're hearing now. And I got no problem with those rules. I know the rules going in. I'm happy to play the game that way. And when Ivan came off with that uh, knee drop from the top rope and he bent me, I thought that something happened. I couldn't hear a thing. You could have heard the pin drop in that arena. It touched me so deeply that when I went in the dressing room, I really felt depressed. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you right to his face. If it's Hogan and I, if he wanted to get in a real street fight with me, trust me, he would lose, and he knew it. You know, that's the other thing. They give you the belt, and they're like, okay, you're in charge of me. I was like, what? When you mentioned a guy like Harley Race, that kind of legendary status, it's obvious why people would get upset. Or as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker. If he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. Bro, I swear to you, I don't have an ego. Like, I don't give a crap. I, that stuff is not important to me. People don't know me. They have no idea of who I am. They know of me as being a fictional character that they saw on TV. People didn't understand that, you know, the guy they saw in the ring that happened to be using his real name and happened to actually be the president of the company, they really believed that that guy that they loved to hate was actually a pretty decent guy. And I think many people have the perception that I really was that character. Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I'm your host, J.P. John Paz. With me today, a very special guest. He is an author, a journalist, a sports writer, also the co-podcast uh, host, I guess you could say, or really the host of the co-main event MMA podcast. He is, of course, Mr. Chad Dundas. Chad, welcome to the two-man power trip. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, John. Thanks so much for having me on. And really, I guess the main reason why I want to talk to you, what's going on with the territories, which is killing it right now on uh, Indiegogo. But just tell us a little bit about it first. Yeah, uh, the territories is a shared fiction universe set in the world of 1980s professional wrestling. And for anyone that that might sound strange to, what that actually means is uh, my old Bleacher Report colleague, Jonathan Snowden, and I, another longtime MMA and professional wrestling journalist who has written a number of outstanding books on both those topics, decided to create a fictional wrestling world based on the old territory system that obviously ruled professional wrestling, you know, from the 1940s until Vince McMahon came along and smashed it all up. Uh, we basically decided to make a, a fictional universe based loosely on that system and then to have a bunch of different established writers that we knew who we knew were either wrestling fans or people that wanted to write about wrestling and would look at it in kind of a different way. We tried to get all of these different authors to come in and write short stories that are basically all set in this same world. So it's basically a team of, of authors kind of all grouping together and telling their own, their own stories, but all of them take place in this one shared universe. Very cool. Territories, of course, on Indiegogo right now. I believe at last check, because I was joking around with our, our mutual buddy there, John Snowden. I was joking around. I was like, I think you set that a little low on, on the total. It was at, I think, 300. That was like a few days ago when I talked to him. Now it's like 857% above target. Yeah, we uh, were, the, the book itself is already 
in progress. It's going to come out regardless of how much money we raise on uh, Indiegogo. We're kind of using Indiegogo because it's the easiest way to uh, have people order the book, pre-order the book. So essentially we will know how many hardcover copies of the book to print. Right. But yeah, we're, we're doing great over there right now. Uh, we just got the Ariel Helwani bump this evening. He was nice enough to, to tweet about it. So uh, yeah, it's it's doing better than I think we thought it would here too two days into the pre-release campaign. And then of course the book itself or the ebook, if that's what you want to get uh, come out on August 1st and will be available to uh, anybody who wants to get them. So with the territories, what like kind of made you guys want to do it? And really like, you know, like you could say, Oh, this is a good idea. We should do it. But what gave you like the, the push? Like let's do this damn thing. Yeah. Um, you know, Jonathan, and I, and I are always interested in, in telling stories around, professional wrestling or telling stories around mixed martial arts. My first book that came out in 2016 champion of the world is a historical fiction novel about uh, professional wrestling in the 1920s and kind of like this awkward transition from being a rough and tumble legitimate sport to being a scripted kind of melodrama that what, what we know today. So I've always been kind of interested in writing about wrestling. I think it creates a lot of really interesting possibilities from a, a fiction writer standpoint. Jonathan has always approached things on more of a journalistic level, but I know he is also interested in in uh, doing what we can to expand the medium and and just trying to do cool art basically around wrestling. And so we were kind of talking about that in different ways that we could approach it. And I had this uh, novella that I had written that's about 115 pages long. That's called The Big Hoss, and it's about a young up and coming pro wrestler in the 80s, kind of traveling around rural Montana. Uh, with a, an older mentor type figure trying to learn the ropes of how to be a, a wrestler. And I, I was telling him, I've got this novella. I don't know what really what to do with it. Uh, I don't know if anyone will publish it or what. And he and he was basically like, well, I've had this idea for a long time of essentially what the territories began, like a shared world professional wrestling universe. And he was like, how about we we bring that novella into the universe and then we find some other writers to write about it. And that was sort of the the seed of it all, the genesis of it all. And, and he and I are lucky enough to know a lot of pretty talented creators ourselves. And so for this first volume of stories, we were able to go out kind of by word of mouth and essentially using our own uh, personal relationships and, and get eight other writers to come on board to write stories for it. Uh, and it's turned out very cool. A bunch of people doing different stuff you know, surprising things. I think, I think if professional wrestling fans read this book, they'll find some, some different points of view, some different, uh, ways to look at the, the business than they might think about. And, and hopefully it, it uh, it's entertaining first of all. And secondly, make, maybe gets people to think about, you know, certain voices and certain opinions that they haven't considered before. Who else is going to be along for the ride? Yeah, well, we, it's me and Jonathan. I have a novella that leads the, the, sh the collection, the big hoss, as I just said, Jonathan, uh, really proud of him, actually, because this is the first time he's ever tried to write a fiction short story before, uh, and he knocked it out of the park. He's got a story in this collection that's really good. Uh, my co-main event podcast host, Ben Folks, who is a, a noted fiction writer, he also has a story in here. Our friend Dan Brooks, who is a contributor, contributor to the New York Times Magazine, has a story in here. The uh, young adult author, Richard Fifield, has a story in it. Uh, Ryan Dilbert, who is also a professional wrestling journalist, some people might know, has a story in here. Nick Mamadas, who is uh, a wrestling fan and a noted uh, mostly science fiction author, but wrote us a, a very cool story about wrestling for this uh, this collection. Carrie Laban, 
uh, Kevin Sesha, who is a writer on the Fox show, uh, The Great North, which is very funny. I don't know if people have seen that, but uh, he wrote a story for us for this collection. Uh, and then uh, Jason Riddler, who is a uh, a creative writing professor professor and uh, wrestling fan from the Midwest. So we got a cool collection of authors. And then we're going to have a second volume that we hope will come out by the end of the year that's going to have you know even more people and it's going to expand the universe even more. So we're excited about that. I was going to say, when you first look at it, it's funny, you know, you look at Andy Gogo, it's like the Territories Volume 1. You're like, where, where's Volume 2? I guess it's right behind, you know, right behind. It's coming right up uh, around the bend. Yeah, we kind of planned it a as a two-volume thing just to start out with because we wanted people to know that the stuff that they encounter in this first volume and the people that they meet will, will go on, that it's going to be an ongoing series and that different authors are going to come in make up their own characters, uh, pick up characters other people have written about, put them in different locations, different settings, different time periods, honestly. Uh, and we wanted people to know that it's not just going to be a one-off thing. So when we planned it, we, we planned the first two volumes. Uh, and that was kind of an undertaking. That alone took a little bit longer than we thought it was going to. But uh, luckily, all of the people in our volume one were very uh, patient with us. And so we always knew we were going to try to get this one out this summer. And then we would like the second volume to come out before the end of the year. So we've got a bunch of people signed up to write stories for that. And they are in the process of of coming in. Drafts of their stories are coming in right now. And, and I'm already excited about it because we're already there are already people who are taking it in different directions and expanding the world and the universe and building on what the volume one people did. So it's going to be very cool. Very cool. And you guys have some supplemental information on it. What is this? What is the Bible? What, what is that all about? Uh, well, in some ways, we approached it like a television show, you know, because be, uh, if you work on an ongoing series that goes on from uh, season to season to season, they will oftentimes have these things called a story Bible that are basically so when new people come in or there's a new episode or a new season that needs to be planned, you can kind of look back at what has already been done and what has already exists in that world and, and the various timelines and characters and plot lines and things like that. Uh, so we have a, like an internal document that's called the Bible that is our, at least to start with, effort to keep track of all of the different stories and timelines and things that are going to be going on inside the territories, which I think is going to get crazy and I think is going to be the hardest part of the whole project is going to be able to, uh, you know, keep a continuity aspect to it. Uh, but it also details some of the history of the world. It details some of the, you know, the all-time great wrestlers in our world who could be showing up in multiple stories or being referred to, you know, as the gods that they are in the same way someone would talk about Harley Race or Ric Flair uh, you know, people are talking about these characters in our stories. So we thought um, for the first volume, if people were interested and they wanted to kind of go deep on this project and, and really get into the territories, we would make, go ahead and make that viable, a free ebook for people to download, which you can also get at the Indiegogo page. So if you're not sure what this is, if you're not uh, totally, uh, you know, gung ho about diving in, you can get the free ebook. You can find out about the world that it's set in. You can find out the history of the world. And then there's two, uh, sample chapters of my novella at the end of it so you can read a little bit of that and decide if it's if it's for you but the the bible is just like uh it's shoulder material i guess if you will it's like backstory and history and uh character bios it explains all 16 of our fictional territories kind of in depth so people can read that and then they'll understand the world that they're going to be in and what they're going to be getting when the actual short stories come out you guys are really covering all bases here with this uh, we, you guys we like, aren't going around we like to think we're very thorough Yes, I like that for sure. Now, obviously, a big part to me, and, and a cool thing is the artwork. So, who did the artwork stuff? Because it looks like I'm seeing some uh, 
devil himself in there. You know what I mean? I'm, <laughs> I'm saying a taskmaster in there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can't say too many nice things about Marco Bucci, the guy who did the art for the territories. He is a guy that I've known for a long time now uh, from being a listener of my MMA podcast, the co-main event that I do with, with Ben Folks. He's just a guy that we got acquainted with. And when I had young children, like Marco reached out to me and said, hey, I just illustrated this book for Disney. Uh, would you like a copy of it? Because I know you have a like a, a five-year-old daughter. And I was like, yeah, that would be great. So he sent me a couple copies of this book that he had illustrated for Disney. We kind of got uh, in touch that way and just started uh, corresponding. He sent me some, some wonderful boxing and MMA. He calls them sketches and I call them amazing paintings uh, <laughs> that, that I have. They're, they're kind of, they're back here now. You can't really see them behind me at this point, but uh, he sent me those. And, and I know Marco is a, a cool guy. So when we were talking about the territories and we wanted to have some concept art and we knew we were going to have to have a cover design and all this other stuff. I reached out to Marco to see if he would be interested in illustrating some of the characters. And he was luckily for us. And he just did such a fantastic job. I mean, we're talking about a guy who is, he's worked for Disney. He's worked for Marvel. He's worked for Mattel toys. Uh, he's just an insanely talented professional guy. And he came in kind of out of the goodness of his own heart. Cause we didn't have a bunch of money to pay him. He just wanted right. to be involved in the project because he thought it was cool. And, and he came in and uh, did these illustrations for the cover and some of the stuff we're going to use online to promote the book before it comes out. He did all these these character sketches and they're just they're unbelievable. It totally brings the world to life in a way that just, uh, you know, the written word can't really do. So we're deeply indebted to Marco for bringing his uh, his amazing talents to this project. It was unbelievable. Yeah, it looks very, very cool. I was looking at Sullivan, possibly the ultimate warrior. I don't know. You know, I mean, like likenesses of the, of the guys for sure yeah, very yeah. cool stuff yeah he definitely uh you know there's a there's a character in a couple of the stories that are in this volume called the the dungeon master damian rex who is uh very much in the in the style of a kevin sullivan type individual so uh we've got illustrations of him we've got illustrations of, of a bunch of the characters really and wrestling fans will look at him and i think it will be familiar to them what they see but i think it will also kind of present the world in a in a different way so I, i'm excited to for them to get to see it so who is the big hoss who is he oh okay yeah uh so as i said the big hoss tells this story of a of a young up-and-coming guy in the 80s his name's dallas hostetler he's working a uh a very bland cowboy gimmick at the start of the of the novella. He's in this uh, promotion up here in Montana where I live called Frontier States Professional Wrestling that basically covers Montana and some parts of Idaho. Uh, and and he's, he's a former Boise State football player. He's got the size. He's got the look. He's got the athleticism. He's got it all going for him. But he's just a little green in the business. Doesn't quite know how to how to uh, pace a match, doesn't quite know how to tell a story out there in the ring, doesn't really know how to connect with uh, the fans. And so he's been teamed up with this, this veteran, a guy who used to be the world's heavyweight champion named Maniac Max Savage, who is also a bit of a, of a cowboy guy. Think about a cross between uh, Terry Funk and Randy Savage, basically. And you've got a good idea of where Maniac Mac is coming from. And so he's been charged with showing uh, Dallas the ropes. And so it's a story about these two guys, one who is an up and comer and one who is kind of on his way down from the big time, maybe for the last time, uh, both of them trying to figure out where they fit in, in this world, uh, that is really rapidly trying to leave them both behind because, <laughs> uh, one guy is getting old and the other guy is trying to be a star in the territories. And, you know, we look back 
on these stories from 2022 and we know that territories aren't going to exist all that much longer but right. uh it's a it's a story of friendship and a story of their uh trials and tribulations as they make their way through rural montana uh you know making every high school gym and uh uh bingo hall and rodeo grounds between Coeur d'Alene and Billings, basically. When you look at it, it's like fact and fiction, right? I mean, there's that there's a lot of realism to what's yeah. going on there. I mean, that's really true to life, mostly. Yeah, and I mean, we we are trying to tell like realistic stories, although we're open to other stuff as well. Like if uh, someone wants to bring in a supernatural element or something like that, we I think we're we're uh, open to those ideas because we want to do a lot of different stuff. The whole point of this this project is to bring a diverse crew of authors with different voices and different genres and different styles and have them all tell stories in this world. Uh, but, you know, uh, we Jonathan and I especially have a deep interest in, in professional wrestling and the history of wrestling. And so we want to tell these kind of like realistic stories that people will will recognize, even if they feel a little bit new to them. And honestly, like when you're building a fictional world like this and you start to try to calculate how you're going to keep track of all of it. One of the more attractive ways to do that is to kind of loosely base the timeline around the real timeline. Uh, of the territories, so we we you know people will see a lot of crossover. They'll see characters that they recognize. They'll they'll read about events that they uh, know in the real world, and uh, hopefully that will help us keep it all straight as we move forward. Because as I said before, it's going to be kind of a crazy to, thing to try to keep this all uh, together and and in a, a way that has any kind of continuity. So we'll see what happens. Is everybody like as far as the other writers are they spreading it out? Like, are we going to have a New York territory? Obviously, this is now west. Are we going to be all over the map as far as territories? Yeah, to start off with, we came up with sixteen fictional uh, wrestling territories, most of which are, you know, made up analogs of the real territories. Because again, we were just trying to kind of figure out how to do the map here. Uh, the the territory that I actually wrote about in the Big Hoss is completely fictional, though. Uh, you know, in real life, Montana was kind of a no man's land back in those days of, of pro wrestling. Uh, it was actually, a, you know, um, part of the stampede uh, pro wrestling territory. But they didn't really ever. This is where I live, by the way, Montana. Uh, they didn't really ever come down here and do events like when I was a kid. The heart, the hearts weren't coming down here to do right. events in Montana. So it was kind of like a uh, a free for all or a dead zone. We didn't get a ton of of pro wrestling back in those days. Um, but we just, you know, the the big hoss, the novella was a thing that predated the the this project, the territory. So uh, it was set in Montana in this fictional uh, territory. So it's kind of one that doesn't really fit in with the rest of the actual territories map. But for the most part, we tried to you know figure out what our analog of of WWF would be, what our analog of Portland wrestling would be. Uh, you know, what our analog of like uh, the Von Erics down in Texas would be and stuff like that and kind of figured it out from there. So we did. We based it very much on the actual territories map. But, you know, then we took some liberties in in turning it into kind of putting our own stamp on it, I guess, and making it into a fictional world. Were you a big wrestling fan? Were you always a big fan? I was, man. I was a fan from the time that I was a, a kid. Some of my first memories are wrestling related stuff. Uh, and, you know, watching both those early WWF uh, shows during the 80s and also kind of watching some of the AWA stuff that that was on uh, ESPN back at that time. And I think maybe USWF as well uh, without really knowing what it was, you know, and then obviously we get we got the Superstation here as well. Uh, so some of that kind of NWA 
stuff was on and i was i was kind of hooked on it from the beginning as a kid uh and continued to be a big fan for you know most of most of my life i like to say i was super lucky because i was a kid during the 80s golden age of wrestling during the like rock and wrestling vince mcmahon era with hulk hogan and andre the giant and all these other guys uh and then when i was in college it was basically the attitude era uh, and so I was a fan then as well in, in the mid nineties, I continued to like monitor pre- like relatively closely the, the goings on in in wrestling on a week to week basis. Although kind of at, at arm's length, I don't uh, have time to watch all of the, the shows these days, but I keep track of it and what's going on. And like when there are big happenings, I will, I will check it out, but I don't, I'm not a week to week, uh, diehard raw or, you know, AEW watcher at this point, but I, I, I keep tabs on it. Cause I'm interested in, in a lot of that stuff. Who was like your guy back then oh, like when man, you were a kid growing up? Uh, well, first, my first love was the junkyard dog back when I was like a, a real small kid back when nice. you could get the, the, the LJN figures. Uh, yep. I had, you know, a pretty, I still have, in fact, a pretty, you know, modest by some people's standards, but, uh, uh, a fairly wide ranging LJN collection. And I had nice. JYD, I had, you know, Hogan and Andre and all those guys. And then uh, when the undertaker debuted, when I think I was th- 13, maybe for that survivor series, that was my guy. I was just so taken with that whole thing. It was so different than anything else that uh, WWF was doing at the time. And, you know, uh, they found the exact right guy to, to, to be that character. And, uh, it was it was really he was my favorite guy all the way up through the 90s and really until you know the recent retirement in fact uh three or four years ago i wrote a graphic novel on contract for wwe about the undertaker um oh wow i think it was called the undertaker rise of the dead man i think was finally the title that they put on it uh and that was fun to do to kind of uh again do a uh write write the script for the graphic novelization of his whole career which was which was fun uh, but yeah, he was my guy for a long period of time and, uh, was, was kind of the guy that I invested the most in back in those days for sure. Did you see the recent, I guess it's the uh, biography of undertaker two hours. It was just on a and a, did he get a chance to catch that? Yeah, I did watch it. I watched, I think I watched all of it. Um, and again, very interesting in some ways, like I felt a little bit like the, uh, the graphic novel that I wrote came along a couple of years too early because it was like just before they finally started letting Mark do press. And so like, uh, I wrote this graphic novel, but it all had to kind of be kayfabe. It was all just about the character of the undertaker. And it was sort of like a fictional backstory of his character and like stuff that would have happened off screen that you would not have seen during his, his actual performances on, on the wrestling programs. But uh, I didn't get a chance to meet or talk to Mark about it because he was still not doing any kind of outreach or anything. He was still, you know, maybe the last great kayfabe wrestling character really back in those days. Uh, and he, he didn't do any press for it when it came out. Uh, and then like a couple years later, leading up to like his eventual retirement and this big kind of behind the scenes documentary that they did, they really took the they took the leash off. And then he was doing a bunch of a bunch of media and i was kind of like oh man i wish he was doing media two years ago when i when i wrote this thing but it was still fun to do like i said he was my favorite uh character back when i was a kid it was kind of like an offer that i couldn't say no to when it came through it was it was you know the taker i had to do it uh so yeah it was it was it was very fun to do that 
it's funny like listening to him like tell stories and now it's like he can't shut up he's doing a <laughs> podcast he's doing the last ride he's doing a e biography like yeah. he's every he's doing espn joe yeah. rogan i mean now you can't get him to shut up it's crazy he's a no, preacher whatever he's trying to be yeah crazy well i mean can you imagine how many stories that guy would have been in the so many different eras of the of wwf wwe locker room yep that's yep. he's he probably said and, and did and saw everything man so like he's probably got he's probably forgot more stories than most guys will ever have goes from the hogan era the Bret era the austin era uh, yeah. The Rock era, the Cena era, a little bit of Lesnar mixed in there too. Then the Reigns era, man, yeah, he was around for for it all. Basically. I know, Crazy. and 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 when you consider it, like one of those, one of the longest standing characters, right? Like I know that they, you know, over time, I think made some smart decisions to kind of massage the character of the Undertaker and make him the Biker Taker and make him all this kind of other stuff that they did during during those eras. But kind of remarkable to think that he was basically that same guy the entire time that he never really got all the way repackaged. Uh, and then whenever they needed to, they just basically had him go back to the, to the dead man stuff. And, and, uh, and it never really got old. Like I know that there are a lot of critics of his actual matches uh, and, you know, maybe not the most imaginative stuff. Maybe you've seen one undertaker match. You've seen them all. If he's not throwing Mick Foley off the top of the cell, I guess, but, uh, but like just incredible staying power. And like, I think when you think about, what a disaster it might've been if they had given that character to somebody else. Like it really makes you realize what a talented performer Mark Calloway was and is. And like the, the, the dedication that he brought to that craft and all of the different ways he figured out to keep renewing it in different eras, different years, different for different audiences. And it's, it's really amazing. The, the longevity of that character, I guess. It is like amazing. Cause you look at, it, it's like, Oh, he's not that great of a wrestler, but you get him in there with like Brett and Shawn Michaels, and even Kane. Like you, you see, like wow, he's better wrestler than we kind of we kind of thought he was. Yeah. So even then, it's like sometimes that character almost held him back a little bit. Like oh, he's got a few with Kamala, the Giant Gonzalez, right. King Kong Bundy, and you know what I mean. Like that kind of held him back a little bit. But you know, hell of a wrestler, hell of a worker. Yeah, and like the guys who talk about him, the guys his opponents, you know, guys he was in the ring with, almost as far as I know, uh, are usually very complimentary of his work. Like as a big guy very smooth, very, uh, you know, rarely hurt, hurt anybody or actually hit anybody. Like uh, the, uh, many of the, the interviews that I've read or the takes of guys who, who worked with him over long periods just seemed like they really enjoyed it. Like they really thought he was great to work with. And I guess maybe you have to be that way if you're going to be around for 30 years or whatever it was. Pretty damn athletic. I know he's not 6'10", like they always say, but right. he's probably 6'8". <laughs> yeah. I mean, pretty damn athletic for being yeah. that, that big and 300 something pounds. Oh yeah. Pretty, pretty amazing athlete especially if you go back and watch the early stuff, man, like uh, as a young guy, he was, you know, doing the the rope walk. And when he would come off the the top, he would get all this elevation. And, and he was, he was a tremendous athlete back in, back in those days, for sure. Funny to see him getting bullied around by Bruiser Brody. Cause they were showing his first match uh, <laughs> as, as Texas red. It's just funny to see like, well, that's different. Like, you know, usually he's like the big bully, but right. You know, he was so green. He didn't know what to do. Brody's just, you know, he didn't complain. He shook his hand in the back and everything else. But he, it's one of those things like, wow, who would have thought, you know, all those years ago, he was the one in that position where he's like the green guy. Like he, he's such the veteran. He's such the conscience of the, the right. WWE. You don't think of him, like, you know, right. in situations like that, unless he goes back and he's talking about it. Yeah. And like it, it kind of, you know, it underscores how you need to find the right situation, right? To, to, 
to make it big or make it at all. You think about a guy like Callaway would seem to have every tool, right? Like he's, he's a six, six or six, seven. He's super athletic, uh, seemed to learn the ropes pretty quickly. Everybody raves about what he's like in the ring. And, you know, it even took him three or four iterations of different characters to find one that, that was finally the one that, that made it big for him. So like, you know, if, if a guy like that needs to find the right piece, the right place to fit in, it just makes you think about all the other guys that, you know, could have been super talented that, that just never got that break or never got that opportunity or didn't get it, get the right opportunity. Uh, and, and you know how hard it is, how hard it is to make it in that, in that business, I think. And it's funny to hear him like talk about how Hogan, he supposedly hurt his neck with the tombstone. And then you see it, it's actually so funny. People think it's the tombstone with the, um, with the chair from flair where it's like not even close it's a different part it's a different tombstone that he that hogan's talking about hogan is totally working obviously but it's yeah. funny to hear like young undertaker be like i can't believe i i thought i heard him then i realized he, he was working me all this other stuff <laughs> it's funny to think like of undertaker in that situation because yeah. you can clearly see and i even think and it's funny i, I know a couple wrestlers that they were laughing about the story they think vince was working undertaker too saying like oh you really heard hogan here you know what I mean? like he was so young in the business that they were yeah. like kind of seeing how he would react yeah I, it's to me it just tickles me because it's like you don't think like the undertaker being young in the business and getting worked by the veteran you know and maybe even the promoter at that point yeah uh and that's you know probably all part of the the journey of be eventually becoming the the locker room conscience yeah. and the guy everybody goes to for advice and to uh meet out just you know to to uh figure out uh arguments and stuff like that uh, but it, like honestly, that's one of the reasons why I think, like, as a, a a fiction writer, writing about pro wrestling is so fascinating to me from a stand from that standpoint. Just because, you know, as much as people laugh at it and like call it fake and all this other stuff, like sometimes even the guys in the back don't know what's real and what's not, right? And it's just like not only as a fiction writer, it just provides you this, this is such fertile ground to to play with that and play with what's what's reality and what's fiction and and where do the lines blur and stuff like that to me it's just the whole thing is fascinating i was just talking to my boss and he was saying about like injuries and stuff he's like oh those guys in wrestling they can't really because he knows i love wrestling he's like can't really be getting hurt i'm like well Hogan, Hulk Hogan, who supposedly was not like a guy that was doing these crazy moves or doing anything really to hurt himself, had 10 back surgeries, uh, five knee surgeries, all, all this stuff, fusion, all this other stuff. I was like, tell me, tell me that's fake. He's like, well, how, he's, he's having all these surgeries. It, it can't be fake. I was like, so in one essence, people are saying, oh, it's, it's predetermined. It's fake. But guy like Hogan, who's not a dangerous wrestler in, in any circumstance, right. is having multiple surgeries, maybe upwards of 20 surgeries. Undertaker, instance two, broke his hip, injured his back, hurt his legs. I mean, these guys are having surgery upon surgery, so for people to say it's fake or it's not real, you know, even my boss is like, wow, that's crazy. He goes, I guess it is real. I'm like, <laughs> well, it, you're really falling, you know, you're, you're really yeah. doing stuff here. No, no. Yeah, that's right. Like the, even though the outcomes are predetermined and like you're out there trying to take care of each other and make it look good for the fans, like clearly it's a dangerous thing to do. And I don't think the layman quite realizes maybe how hard it is, you know, like how hard it is to make it look as good as a lot of these guys make it look. And, uh, the, the impacts are real. The whiplash is real. All of that stuff. Uh, the landings are real. So yeah, the people get hurt all the time and, and it's, it's, uh, obviously there's a huge physical price to be paid for being in that business uh, for any amount of time. And so, 
uh, uh, you know, I always go back and forth on with some of my other like non-wrestling fan buddies about whether or not fake is the right word for it. And obviously that's a, an old argument, uh, in many of these, uh, circles, but it's like, you know, predetermined. Yes. Like parts of it obviously are fake. And then some of it is, uh, realer than I think anybody want it, wants it to be. Funny when people say to me, like, oh, you know, that's not real when you're like, you're watching on TV and they book, I was like, everything on TV, nothing's real. Maybe, maybe right. some sports, but even some sports to some degree, you see some, uh, some collaboration and stuff going on, you know, maybe some shady stuff. It's the money going on behind the scenes, but really everything on TV, reality shows, you look, they have writers, you look yeah. at the, the credits. So, I mean, everything on TV, nothing, nothing is quote unquote real, but I mean, they're really, getting injured and they're really putting their lives on the line and they're really risking it all. Yeah. Uh, back in the, in the nineties, when people would tell me professional wrestling was fake, I would be like, Oh, have you seen ER? Did you know George Clooney's not really a doctor? Like he's, <laughs> he's just up there playing a part, man. Uh, and like, I, you know, from, from some of the historical research that I did for, for champion of the world, uh, which kind of, if anything, I pushed the, the, the time period of when wrestling would have transitioned from being an actual legitimate, hard-nosed sport to being a uh, a scripted uh melodrama i kind of probably pushed that forward a little bit to you know into the 20s in reality probably by the late 1800s most of those matches were worked uh and people always make a big deal about how wrestlers were taking advantage of fans and like all wrestling fans were just these rubes and they were buying into it and like you go back and you read accounts of those old matches and even going back to the late 1800s or the early 1900s you had guys like who were working gimmicks like the masked Marvel and all this stuff, or or like they were doing stuff that was just clearly a work, right? And so I think uh wrestling fans themselves get kind of a bad rap for being like marks for being worked, right? By these carnies. But at the same time, I think uh wrestling fans probably knew that it was wasn't on the level. Anybody who's seen an actual real street fight knows that what those guys are doing in there isn't the same thing, right? So I think that going back a long time, sure, some people were probably fooled by it, but I think that there was a lot of like winking and nudging at each other. And I think for the most part, almost since its inception, like people were there for the entertainment value, not necessarily uh, taking it all that seriously. But it's like real life superheroes that you could touch, you could feel, you could see in person. Yeah. You don't have to watch them on TV. And even back then, it's almost like, oh, the guy is larger than life. We could go see him. You know what I mean? It's it's like an amazing thing with wrestling that your actual superheroes are real people to a certain extent. Yeah, no, for sure. Like when I was a big fan myself, we went and saw uh, WCW and WWE uh, as often as we could. And, you know, a WCW house show came through Missoula where I live and like, we were all in college. We we're trying to figure out where the wrestlers were, where they were going to be after the show. So we we found them out at this bar. And I remember like going up to uh, just order a drink while Kevin Nash was standing at the bar and just being like, I come up to the middle of this guy's bicep. Yeah, like, he's a monster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm about six feet tall and this dude is just enormous. So. Uh, yeah, it's very cool when when you get to to see those guys. I saw the big show at one of the WWE uh, fan fest things before the uh, WrestleMania that I went to, and again, just like massive humans, massive individuals. So like, it, yeah, it's definitely. And I, as a kid, you eat that stuff up, right? The the kind of uh, superhero nature of it all, especially in the '80s when I was coming up. So. That's why I worked with Nash before. Did like autograph signs with him stuff, 
and he gets out of the car. I'm like up to like it's like barely up to his like stomach almost. I'm like, holy crap! And he's ornery. He didn't have anything to eat. I'm like, this guy is like a real life monster. Yeah, yeah. he's really nice though. But he's yeah. like, come on. He's like, oh, I gotta get some eat. And you know, as soon as he gets some eat, he's cool as hell, laughing, joking around and stuff. But I was, man, he's like, you're somehow bigger than I realized. Yeah, like, he's a monster. And Big Show, oh my god, shaking his hand is like literally a bear claw, and it like engulfs <laughs> your entire hand. It's like this guy's a monster. Yeah, this you know. Uh, in Missoula, a couple of times we've had some of the like uh, bad boys of professional wrestling, a like fairly low level indie show that would come through, and it works. A lot of the like old veteran guys will be out there, like either doing autographs or the you know working matches and stuff. And a couple of years ago, uh, Brutus Beefcake was there, and uh, Billy Gunn was also there before this a- AEW run. Uh, and I was astounded how big both those guys were. Like Beefcake is is a legitimate giant, and like obviously uh, a little bit long in the tooth, and like wasn't getting around the ring, you know, nearly compared to like what he used to. But like you could still tell that he had this like weird charisma and star power up there. It was kind of interesting to watch him because you could tell that he had this uh, intangible thing, whatever it was, the star quality. And then Billy Gunn, the exact same thing, like just a monster. First of all, way bigger that I would have thought that he was in person. And then you see him in the ring. I think he worked uh, Chris Masters uh, in Missoula. They did like a whole master lock thing. And it was, it was kind of funny, but uh, you see Billy in the ring and the way he's getting like the, 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 just the pace that he sets and the way that he's doing it immediately. You're like, Oh, this guy, first of all, obviously a guy who came out of the WWE school of, of wrestling. Like he's, he, he does it all exactly right. But like also just sort of like this weird star power, this weird charisma that he has, even in the ring when he's just in there like wrestling, like telling a story. He just like so polished and so kind of in control of everything and nothing is rushed. Everything looks like it's supposed to look uh, and he's out there doing it for, you know, 300 people at the minor league baseball stadium in Missoula, Montana. It's still like kind of amazing to watch him work as like a fan of the of the industry. Like it's always amazing to me to go see live shows like that and be like, Oh, okay. Like this guy's and sometimes it doesn't come through on television, but when I see him live, I can really tell like, Oh, this guy's good. Like he's really, really good. Felt the same way, frankly, about Cesaro. When I went to see a couple of WWE uh, house shows pretty recently, a few years ago, you know, when he was still there, but uh, uh, I watched, I went to two different ones. I think one was raw and maybe one was SmackDown. I don't even know. But, uh, on both of those events, Cesaro was just like, you watched it and you're just like, oh, that guy's a star. You can just tell just like from how he's working. Like he worked the best match. He cut the best promo. He looked the best out there. Uh, and sometimes all that stuff doesn't always come through on television. But then you go see him live and it's like, okay, now I see. Now I see this guy's potential. Absolutely. Cesaro is great. Obviously, he's doing great. I know I'm watching it too much, but he's doing great in uh, AEW so far. So far, so good with him. But Billy Gunn, it's funny. I asked him, I'm like, you're actually like way bigger than like in person than you realize. And he says, because the way he sold during his matches and the way he kind of carried himself in the WB and his time in his prime in WB, all those guys were huge. JBL yeah. is six seven. Right. Uh, Ron Simmons is a monster. I mean, all these guys are, are huge guys. Road Dog is six four. So I mean, yeah. like all these guys are big. So I'm like, wow. How t-? He's like, I'm probably about six five. And I was like, oh my god. I actually thought you were b- bigger than that because he is just a, a monster in real life. He, when I'm, I saw him and Abyss were together, this is many years ago. He was bigger than Abyss. I'm like, oh my god, Billy Gunn. Yeah. But he said it was the way he sold and the way he kind of carried himself the ring. 
and it was never presented. I think they said he was six three or something. I was like, that's so weird. They always said you were shorter. <laughs> he's like, yeah. He goes, they always said I was smaller on TV. Foley too, for some reason. If you meet him, he's like six four ish, and they always, he's probably shrunk now because he had so many injuries. But it, always a guy that they would never say was as big as he was. So strange sometimes in the yeah. business. But they're bigger Billy, than you think. Yeah, Billy Gunn, maybe the only guy in the history of wrestling to be billed as shorter than he actually is. That's crazy. Yeah, uh, weird. Very weird. The, the, and honestly, the same thing was true of uh, Jake Roberts. I met him a while ago. He came through town on one of these uh, bad boys of professional wrestling tours. And this was like right around the same time that Beyond the Mat came out. Uh, but I interviewed him for like the local paper and did a story about it. He wrestled the one-man gang uh, on a weekend show. And like you'd think of Jake Roberts like in the 80s when he was in WWF as like a kind of a skinny guy, right? Like kind of slight uh, yep. would work those jabs that he would do. But like you meet him in person and that guy's huge, man. He's looking like he's six foot six and just like he's just an enormous guy. And so, again, like they're all surrounded by giants in those WWF, WWE days. So maybe you don't get a real uh, appreciation for for the size and the frankly, the athleticism of some of it. Yep, it's funny. He's like six six. Dibiase's like six four. You don't realize that these guys are you know they're all big. Yeah, yeah. Or at least they were in those days. You meet you meet the guys today, and you're like, oh, this guy's like about my size. Okay. Yeah. I can, I, I can, <laughs> yeah, I can talk of, to this guy. Yeah, a lot of the guys are a little bit smaller. I don't know where those big guys are going. Are those big guys going to MMA? Are they fighting? Like, where are all the big men? Or do they go to football? Like, where are the big guys going? Yeah, I mean, I think. You know, both with wrestling and MMA, if you are a person of that size with that athletic ability, you're probably going to get a better offer at some point because even like the heavyweight MMA fighters aren't making that much money. They're not making the kind of money you would make as a basketball player or a football player and not even close. Uh, you know, I think the reported payout for Francis Ngannou's last fight with the UFC was like $600,000, which is, uh, you know, a lot for a regular person, not necessarily a lot for, for a guy who's probably making the company 20, 20 million dollars every time he's, he goes out. World and heavyweight champion, hardest punch of all time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's that's just not that that much. And that's why I think he's having these con contractual disputes with the UFC right now. And uh, if he has the opportunity to go take a boxing match in 2023, uh, he'll probably do it because any boxing match would pay him way more than he is going to make. Oh, yeah. Uh, as a. Uh, uh, as a, the the UFC champion, certainly, but there's a reason why most of the you know the deepest weight classes in MMA are the you know 155, 145, 170. Not only because that's just sort of like the statistical average size of of men of of people, but like because bigger guys than that, like they do other stuff, like they get better offers, they play football or they go do something else. Somebody, some coach finds them and is like, hey, come play offensive line for my high school football team, and then they're off and running doing something else. And so like uh, those heavyweights usually you find out they have lived a life previous when they show up in MMA. They've always tried to do one thing first and then it didn't work out for them. So they came over and did this other thing. And it's probably true uh, in wrestling as well, unless you're born into it, you know, uh, unless you're like a second or a third generation wrestler. And then uh, may maybe it's kind of something you grew up with. So that's what you get into. But for the most part, I think, uh, you know, you're starting to see better athletes in MMA now and have over the last decade or so. But, uh, you know, you're still not getting LeBron James style guys. You're still not getting really, really high level NFL style athletes and, and NBA players. Not that athleticism is the end all beat all in MMA either, but like big, real big guys who can play another sport do because right. <laughs> they make More a lot money. better money. So in your world, obviously you do pro wrestling and you got your MMA podcast. Everybody know, or, or it, it's one of those things where it's like, everybody should know, but 
MMA is really like the the stepbrother of pro wrestling, or or the stepson, yeah. or the godson of pro wrestling. But yeah. it, I know a lot of people aren't making the correlation. But I mean, it's right there. It's pretty obvious, right? Right. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, MMA fans who get huffy about it, and they want to be like, "Oh, I don't, well, I don't watch pro wrestling." But and then they'll say some stuff to reveal that they actually do totally watch pro wrestling. Uh, but it's it's <laughs> like they don't want to acknowledge that professional wrestling is the estranged brother of mixed martial arts, right? Uh, they, uh, if you want to break it down that way, they do kind of come from uh, shared ancestorship, you know, like in America, the, the old catch wrestling days, uh, really from the civil war on where it was kind of like a melting pot of all of these different grass grappling disciplines that kind of later turned into what we now know of, of as modern catch wrestling, at least in America, which is like, obviously, a, uh, you know, one branch goes to pro wrestling and one branch goes to, to MMA. Uh, it's the same tree and the Gracie's certainly uh, are essentially a professional wrestling family, right? He right. worked uh, matches when he was a young guy, the, the Gracie's developed the UFC basically as an infomercial for Gracie jujitsu. They didn't fix those early fights, but they invited guys that they figured hoist could probably beat. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of carny in those early jujitsu guys. And so to me, it's all, you know, it's two sides of the same coin and like, it's a, we're all kind of part of the same family. So I don't really understand the, the, uh, the, uh, the hesitancy by MMA fans to admit that they're closely more closely related than, than we had thought during the inception of MMA for sure. And Oh, by the way, all of the guys who make all the money are essentially running wrestling gimmicks, right? Like Conor yeah. McGregor is doing a oh. Ric Flair and like, that's, part yep. of the secret is success and colby covington is is working a gimmick and that's why people know who he is and chael sauna and back in the day he was feuding with anderson silva just will flat tell you he would go watch superstar billy graham videos and steal <laughs> the lines from him and sam uh yep. on mma broadcast so like uh in retrospect for mma people i think it took kind of a long time to uh to catch on to what a guy like sonnen was doing because he was one of the first guys to come out and really do it that way but now you look at it and it's just like the people who become the biggest stars are essentially working a uh, wrestling gimmick. And I mean, that's to say nothing of Brock Lesnar, right? Like <laughs> the biggest yep. heavyweight star MMA has ever seen who yep. came directly from pro wrestling and amateur wrestling prior to that. So I don't know. To me, it's silliness for people to try to pretend like they're embarrassed of pro wrestling or they don't want to acknowledge these shared roots because it all, it all comes from the same place and it, it all goes back to the same place in, as, as it turns out. It's funny when people say like, "Oh, pro wrestlers, I don't know how they, how good they would do in MMA." I always laugh, be like, "Oh, the Gracies, they're great, right?" The greatest uh, to me, I I put them up there. I know weight class kind of destroyed them, and really injuries kind of killed his career. But the greatest MMA guy to me is a hundred seventy five, let's say hundred seventy five pound Japanese guy who, oh by the way, is really a pro wrestler. Sakuraba is unbelievable. I mean, this maybe he's beat all the greats. He it literally embarrassed them. Um, destroys Rampage, beat Shamrock. I mean, he's got all these awesome wins. Guess what? He's Takata student. He's a wrestler. You know what yeah. I mean? I love that. It's funny. I mentioned that to Josh Burnett. He said that he goes, that is true, but he does have a great amateur wrestling background. Yeah. I go, yeah, but come on. But let's just, he's a pro wrestler. Come on. Right, right. Well, and the same is true of Josh, right? He's one of these guys who gets yeah. it. He, he knows yeah. both these things and uh, yep. will take a payday in either place that he can get it. And it's the Japanese market, obviously, has always uh, been a lot more accepting of both things. It doesn't necessarily... Uh, draw the line as as sharply as we have here in America culturally. There's probably a lot more 
MMA in the Japanese pro wrestling style. And there's a lot more pro wrestling in the Japanese MMA style during uh, the days of pride and stuff like that. So uh, for whatever reason, it's just kind of uh, a different cultural thing over there, which, you know, again, like I think it's fascinating about all these sort of different, like not only pro wrestling, but MMA cultures, right? It's just like, it's just a whole different ball game in Japan in terms of uh, the crossover between those two sports and, and, how they're they're dealt with and and the what the fans will both put up with and cheer cheer for and pay their money for uh and just very different in america although like you're kind of starting to see those lines blur a little bit more now um but yeah i I think it's 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 fascinating and so a guy like barnett right who has an extensive uh legitimate grappling background uh and a great catch wrestler who kind of flirts between pro wrestling and mma and I think probably like got that education when he was in Japan for so long. Like that's probably why he has that appreciation. Yep. Uh, and, and so, you know, he, he kind of gets the relationship more than, than some other guys do. I just think it's funny when they're like, Oh, who, you know, what good pro wrestlers shamrock really was a pro wrestler first. Yes, Sender was. was a pro wrestler first, obviously Lesnar world champions, a wrestler first. I know people joke around Lashley. He beat a bunch of cans, but still he's got a great, it was a 17 or two or something. So, I mean, he had a great record. Obviously he was a yeah. pro wrestler first. So, I mean, it's been going on for many, many years that these guys from pro wrestling went over to MMA to make some money. Yeah. And you look at uh, Dan Severn's first, UFC appearances back in the pioneer days. And like uh, Al Snow was there hanging over the top of the cage. Like they were training together for that event just because, you know, back in those days, no one knew what to expect. And so they were just, you know, the tough guys training together, getting ready for, for the UFC. And uh, you know, no one really even knows that, that Al Snow had that background or was there. So it's, it's always, and I think Becky Levi, who was uh, Severn's manager at the time and managed uh, uh, several, I think kind of Michigan slash Midwestern MMA fighters, I think was like a, a, a wrestling manager too, or something like there's a crossover there as well. I think uh, I'm not totally clear on it, but I'm pretty sure that, that she was involved in both those things too. So like eh, MMA guys don't necessarily want to admit it, but I think the pro wrestling ethos was always there. And then of course you're selling it as a, you know, no holds barred blood sport and all this stuff when it's, is it really though? I don't know. I think it's funny because some guys will say, oh, MMA is way harder or this sport's way harder. I was talking to Boss Root and interviewed him a while ago. He did some pro wrestling. He dabbled in it. He goes, hell no. He goes, I'm done. He goes, this is harder than MMA. I'm like, get out of here. He said it was way harder. He didn't like the bumps. He didn't like it. He said it was actually more injuries, and it was like more of, of a wear and tear on his body. And yeah. Rudin, you could put him arguably up there as one of the greatest MMA fighters of all time. He is saying pro wrestling was tougher. So you got to give wrestlers some credit. If one of the greats in MMA is giving you know you a pat on the back saying, it was too tough for me. I'm going to go back into MMA or I'm going to retire into um, commentating. Right. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, it, it's sort of by its nature, higher impact, right? Because you, you have to do these moves that are, have the wow factor are going to look good for people who are watching them. Whereas if you don't know what you're watching in MMA, a lot of times it just doesn't look like much. So you're doing these big, big explosive moves and taking these uh, impacts and bumps and your body's getting all beat up. I don't have a hard time believing at all that, that it could be a little bit, uh, you know, more stressful on your body, probably in a different way. Uh, And I also think that like MMA people frequently underestimate how hard the performance aspect of it is. Like look at all of the people that you've seen, cross the other way over right from MMA to uh, professional wrestling. And very few of them have like made it look real good. You know, I remember the uh, 
when like Tito and Rampage would go over to, I think it was uh, TNA at the time they were, yep. they did some crossover stuff and that was just terrible. Like they could never make it look good. Uh, really. It's kind of a Testament to, to, you know, guys like Kane Velasquez who actually looked fair halfway legitimate when he would go over and do wrestling stuff. And I, I haven't watched a ton of Ronda Rousey's WWE stuff, but it seems like, you know, she took it halfway serious and, and maybe, had the chops i don't totally know but just like yeah, i think she's not bad at all yeah yeah she's she's pretty good i think that that like performance pro wrestling style is it's like i said you know at the beginning of the show harder to make it look good than people think it is and i think that that is true of mma people they think they're just going to come in and you know be great from the start and it turns out uh it's not the same thing at all and it's maybe a little bit more challenging than they expected yeah it's funny like you would think like some of them would be better like king mo for instance yeah great athlete am, amateur wrestler i mean he you know he was an awesome amateur wrestler at oklahoma state obviously world champion uh in light heavyweight division in in um strike force and you know he was good in bellator for, for an extended period of time rising he won that big tournament so it's like wow king mo he'll be great he, he's such a good talker no he yeah. struggled in pro wrestling and still yeah. struggling in pro wrestling yeah, no, I think it's just it's a different skill set and it's harder than people think it's going to be. Of course, then you got a guy like Dan Lambert like rolls in <laughs> and it's like uh, the world's greatest heel manager right off the right off the bat. Like some yeah. some people just have it, I guess. Yep. Well, he's a longtime fan. I mean, he's yeah. been a fan forever. His belt collection is absolutely ridiculous of, of some of the stuff. So, I mean, you could tell how long a fan has been. But uh, JDS and Arlovsky tried to do some pro wrestling and. Yeah, they were okay, but they you could tell they struggled very, very green. It yeah. wasn't an easy transition at all. Right. And that's that's gonna be two guys that are getting, you know, near the end of their athletic uh primes. So like probably a, a more difficult transition for them than it would be for somebody like Paige Van Zant, for example, who's much younger, or or yeah. uh, you know, somebody like that who who probably could make a go of it if they really want to. It's funny, like people think like would McGregor be good? He would fit in perfectly attitude wise, but it's tough to say who would like transition well because Tyson Fury did a wrestling match. It was awful. You know what yeah. I mean? So I, I know it's more boxing, but still it's like these guys that are great elsewhere. It doesn't necessarily translate to pro wrestling. Pro wrestling is different. Logan Paul was great. Yeah, he and was, they, wasn't and, he? And they ended up signing him. So I mean, yeah. you never know really who's going to be good in pro wrestling. We talked about that on our podcast after Logan Paul made that appearance. And I was like, wow, this guy's really good. Like he should do this. Like this is something he should focus on. And then he showed up. I think on Ariel Helwani's show, like the week after WrestleMania and was like, can you imagine how good I would be if I actually tried uh, or like took it serious and like actually yeah. studied? So I don't know what his schedule will be like. I assume he's not going to be out there working every house show or anything like that because he doesn't need the money. But, uh, you know, I think it's great. Like if he actually wants to be a more, uh, uh, you know, more, uh, a frequent part of the show wants to show up to to like learn the craft and do all that stuff it looks like he's got the stuff so he might as well yeah. who do you think just in general or or in in history who's the like the mount rushmore of mma oh man that's such a hard question like i'm a kind of a uh i've been at this point around the game so long like i'm one of the old guys at this point uh that i'm a bit of a traditionalist so i would probably put fedor up there i would probably put anderson silva up there i would probably put george st pierre up there uh you know and then it's 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 uh kind of a grab bag there are a lot of people who deserve it like you could put hoist up there if you wanted to just you know, put the first real great champion up there uh you could put somebody like sakuraba if you wanted to highlight the the pride era and definitely those those people 
would deserve it. In my heart of hearts, if I'm just allowed to pick my favorite dude, it would probably be Randy Couture. Uh, but, uh, you know, so you could almost put anybody up there, the the greats. You could put McGregor up there just for uh, drawing, drawing, power. drawing power and, and uh, you know, visibility, if nothing else. Um, so, yeah, like I, I would I would probably stick with those three guys as kind of like being sort of head and shoulders. I mean, you could put BJ Penn up there if you wanted, if you wanted to focus on how good he was at lightweight before they got rid of the division and he went and did other stuff for a while. But uh, I would put those three guys up there for sure. And then you probably have a conversation about who's number four. Johnny Bones Jones, but the steroid stuff. I mean, the guy yeah. had more steroids in his system than Overeem when Overeem was eating the horse meat. So, I mean, you know, that it's always in question with him because it's like, oh, look at his resume. It's got a great resume. I know beating a lot of the guys when they're uh, kind of on their way out, like the Shogun was kind of, you know, kind of losing his prime a bit. Rampage was losing his prime a bit. I mean, he's still beating these huge names. Machida was it was a good win. But, I mean, it just seems like you never know what the, the, the steroid stuff. I mean, he got popped twice. So it's like how long was he doing it, how many times. So he's always, to me, in question because he seems like he's hard to beat, although – Dominic Reyes and Tiago Santos probably both won those fights, but yeah. still, uh, he, he's uh, got to be in the conversation too. Even though I don't really particularly like him and his attitude, but he's got to be up there. Yeah, he was, uh, especially during the prime of his light heavyweight run, was just so far head and shoulders above everyone else, both figuratively and literally, because he was just so much bigger than everybody else in that two hundred five pound division at the time. But I still think. The run that he went on where he beat all he beat five former champions in a row. Uh, and you just mentioned many of them is the greatest. Like I want to say it was like a calendar year. Maybe he just beat them all like really quickly. It's one of the greatest runs that I've ever seen from Imagine if Dan Henderson didn't hurt his knee. He could have got a win over Hendo too. Would have been like yeah. six of the greatest guys yeah. ever. Yeah. And and like uh, you know, to beat Daniel Cormier uh twice and then, and then when we saw Cormier do in the heavyweight division, I think he went on to kind of prove how good he actually is. So like there's never been a wider gulf between ability in the, in the cage and like, you know, ability to handle life outside of it than, than, than John Jones. And uh, I stuck up for the guy as long as I possibly could back in the, in the old days. Cause I interviewed him a couple of times and I thought that he seemed like a genuine guy, like his, his heart was kind of in the right place. And then like the second or third time he crashed his Bentley, <laughs> I had to be like, ah, oh, I don't think yeah. I can stick up for you anymore, Johnny. Uh, yeah. And and he's really tarnished the legacy at this point. But, uh, you know, you're probably right, like just in terms of pure ability and dominance. Yeah. Arguably the, the greatest of all time. And it, it, it's uh, it's interesting to wonder how much else he could have done if he didn't spend, you know, multiple years suspended and away doing, yeah. doing his own thing kind of um, – and like I was, I, I still think if the UFC could make it, that John Jones and Francis Ngannou would be the biggest MMA fight in history. And they're kind of circling it again now. It kind of sounds like they're, you know, they're chirping at each other again yeah. online. And and Dana White mentioned it. He says J Jones because Jones has been flirting with going to heavyweight for a couple of years now, right? And he's put yeah. on all this weight. Uh, so I don't even know he could go back to light heavyweight if he wanted to. Uh, and then Dana White, and not that you can take anything Dana White says as gospel truth but he says it's either going to be Stipe Miocic or Francis Ngannou for for John Jones and and some of that I think is posturing because I'm I will be surprised if Francis comes back and fights for the UFC again in in uh in some ways I'll be surprised but like if they can put that together at the end of the year that would just be massive be a massive yep. pay-per-view for them and hopefully yep. those guys would get 
a larger chunk of it because they would definitely deserve it. Definitely. It is interesting to see like, okay, with Jones is bigger because post you would think post steroid era Jones hasn't been the same guy. You know what I mean? The, the, uh, Tiago Santos fight was terrible. The gotcha. Reyes fight was terrible. He really, if, if we're really judging it fairly, he lost both fights and they were both stinkers. I mean, they were yeah. not good. You know what I mean? Like one of those things where it's like, wow, he's not the same guy, but I wonder if maybe put, put on the extra weight, a, able to be as athletic as he possibly can be. Yeah, maybe. I, well, one of the things that really makes me wonder about John at heavyweight is that th those two fights were some of the first times that he had to fight someone that he did not have an enormous size advantage over. Right. right? And previous to that, yeah. like it yeah. was it was probably Alexander Gustafson who gave him the yeah. toughest fight previous to those two guys. So yeah. I think you started to see a, several different things with Jones happen at once. Like he had he was getting a little older. Uh, he had not been in the cage on a consistent basis. So he, you know, he had all this time off this downtime really. Uh, and so the, those things were happening just like the natural sort of aging process and spending time away from the sport, not being as sharp perhaps as he had been before. And on top of that, you've got this sort of new breed of light heavyweight where guys are just bigger. They're all as big as John Jones now, particularly Dominic Reyes and, and Tiago Santos. Uh, and the other thing that was happening is I think Jones just fights differently now. And I think weirdly enough, it's because he is better. Like he has spent all this time, you know, uh, sharpening his striking game with guys like Brandon Gibson down there in, in Albuquerque. And I think that he has this attitude now where he's not going to force the action. Like he's going to kind of go out there, feel out his opponent, and he's confident enough in his skills that he thinks eventually he's either going to outpoint them and get the decision or he's going to get a stoppage. Uh, now, whether or not that is a good mindset, a good philosophy to have, I think is up for debate, but it's just a different approach than he had when he was going out against smaller guys and he would just like sweep them, throw them down on the ground and just like drop elbows on them until the fight was over in, you know, three minutes or whatever, or choke Machida unconscious and drop them on the canvas like a bag of dirty laundry. It's just a different fighting style. So I think you kind of have all these different things coming together for John in those two kind of lackluster performances against Reyes and, and Santos. But it does give me pause about his prospects in the heavyweight division to go out there and fight guys like Miocic or Ngano or anybody else in the heavyweight division where he's not going to have this natural size strength. He'll probably have a reach advantage because he's got the longest dang arms in the UFC, but like yeah. uh, he's not going to have these other advantages that, that he used to have. And I think that that could be a real problem for him. Uh, so I, I would be real interested to see how it goes. And if, if it's not Ngano, I hope it's Stipe because I think that that's also a real interesting fight for John and a big marketable fight for the UFC as well. Um, but yeah, I'm, I would be interested to see how the guy will do. I'm a little, I mean, I sound like a fool saying I'm skeptical of John Jones's abilities, but I'm a little bit skeptical to see how he'll do at heavyweight. I just don't think he'll have those same advantages. Yep. Definitely. He's not used to it. He's used to being the big guy in, in the big fight. But, uh, as we wind it down, we're head towards the finish. Give us one last big push for the territories. I mean, everyone who has read it so far has had nothing but praise for it. Everybody thinks it's outstanding. If you're a wrestling fan, if you like to read, if you're uh, an MMA fan, I think you'll find some stuff to like in this book as well. Uh, I guarantee you've never seen anything like it in the world of wrestling. It's a brand new thing that's never been done before, to my knowledge, to have all these different really, really talented writers, people who are, are established names and have done other publications and done actual stuff, come in and write stories about wrestling. Uh, I think people will like it and, uh, you know, it's, people should just check it out, give it a, give it a chance. And I think you will like it if you are, especially if you are a fan of the kind of golden age 
of 80s wrestling. I think it will be right in everybody's wheelhouse. I'm pretty confident people will like it. Where can everybody find it now, and where will they be able to find it in the future? Uh, for now, we're doing the pre-order stuff all on Indiegogo. You just go to Indiegogo.com and search the territories. is probably the easiest way to find it. After August 1st, uh, it'll be available on Amazon, especially for international people you know, in Canada and elsewhere who don't want to pay those international shipping fees. Uh, probably the best thing to do is to wait until after August 1st and then get it on Amazon so you can just have it shipped from your country's Amazon fulfillment centers. Uh, it'll also be on gumroad.com. I think it'll still be available through Indiegogo if people want to try to exist outside the Amazon universe. Uh, but those those are generally the places to get it. You can follow us on social media. I'm at Chad Dundas on Twitter. Jonathan Snowden, I believe, is at J.E. Snowden on Twitter. And like uh, we tweet about it incessantly at this point. So if you catch us over there, you won't miss it. I guarantee it. Yes, Chad, awesome stuff. Got to have you back on again, dissecting some of the greatest resumes in, in MMA history. Got to do that. But uh, yeah. Chad, thank you so much for all the time. Appreciate it. You bet, John. So much fun. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash TMPT Empire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip, where the power lies brother.